Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Tracy Koga. And thanks for downloading this podcast from ilikehugh.com. If you can, give us a follow or a subscribe. And remember that all the information about the guests in today's episode can be found at ilikehugh.com. Now, let's get started. I'm Tracy Koga with something short and fun. This is a Hugh soundbite. In the last, I think, at least for sure a year and a half, I have never used the word vaccine more in my life. And I guess we've all become familiar with vaccines through the pandemic, through COVID. And I have my very special friend here. And I'm going to say she's an expert on everything to do with medical information, especially rare genetic diseases. But it's so good to have you live here in person, Cheryl, Dr. Cheryl Rockman-Greenberg. But from now on, I'm calling you Cheryl. And uh, we had a really interesting conversation over the phone. And I really wanted to do this chat. And we are also going to have some virtual guests join us too, because information needs to be out there. Um, you know, we've, like I said before, we've learned so much through COVID and how fast a vaccine can come. And it's not a cure, but definitely has given um, at least some room of comfort. Now, for you and your line of study, uh, rare genetic diseases and the whole long process of getting even a drug to even to one level and let alone even become available is so unbelievably long. What is so important? What needs to change, I guess? And we'll talk about it. Well, Tracy, first of all, thank you so much for showing some interest in this subject. Mm -hmm. Because as you mentioned, you know, during COVID time, we all, regardless of the area in which we work, have been so consumed with COVID. And this is not in any way to say that whatever COVID has taught us is not important. But it also brings up the point that you know life goes on for people outside of COVID. And you know my colleagues and I have had to try to continue to respond to the areas in which we work and to meet our patients' needs. So to do a talk today a little bit about some of the challenges that our patients face when dealing with rare disorders. And there are many, many rare disorders that are genetic, but there are many rare disorders that are not genetic. To, be, to have a program on this is something I greatly, greatly appreciate. It's certainly very close to my heart. So I'm really happy to talk about um, but rare diseases and not so much in the time of COVID, but especially in the time of COVID, we cannot forget that there are people out there who are dealing with the day-to-day issues of complex rare diseases. 
and it's hard too because the hospitals are full. Like for you, um, I guess, Cheryl, what in your own personal opinion have you seen, you know, with these patients that are also so sick but cannot get the right help? Well, I think one of the messages that came through throughout COVID and people were afraid to go to hospitals, afraid to go to the doctors, if you have any disease, whether it's a rare genetic disease or a rare disease, and you need help, you must seek out your help, your care providers, and people have to continue to go to emergency or to their care providers to get the help. So that, you know, the care of patients with rare diseases has continued throughout COVID and should continue throughout COVID. Many of the, much of the care has gone virtual, so there's many appointments that can be done virtually, and that has actually been a great boon for patients, particularly those who live out of town, far from the, from the tertiary center where we work and where some of our, when our guest, Dr. Sears, works. So virtual medicine has really enhanced our ability to reach our patients with rare genetic and metabolic disorders. But nonetheless, face-to-face -face meetings and the care that they require has, 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 has probably increased um, because people have had the questions, of course, what does COVID mean to my rare disease? So we've had to deal with that with all our groups of patients, as well as dealing with their underlying condition. And now let's talk about clinical trials or, or the process yeah. to get a drug approved. How long and how arduous is it? Well, it is said from the time a research discovery is made about a potential for a new treatment to the time you can actually in your doctor's office, receive a prescription. It could be about 20 years. You know. Now we know how accelerated access to vaccines have happened during COVID, but in the world of rare genetic metabolic diseases, discoveries are increasing exponentially through research and through clinical trials. But the whole process of ultimately getting approval and you know, having drugs on provincial formularies takes a very, very long time. It's a very, very complicated process. There are many, many players involved. Oh, I, and well, who, do we, who could we lobby to? Or who could we go to? Well, well, I always say the most important thing, you know, when you present to your physician is that the diagnosis has to be made. So when you're dealing with rare diseases, whether they're genetic or non-genetic, the very first thing is you have to get a diagnosis. So it's up to my colleagues and I and the care providers in the community to make sure that they keep rare diseases on their agenda and to seek out the proper specialty consultations and subspecialty consultations to get access to accurate diagnoses. So once you have a diagnosis, okay, then it's up to the care provider and the specialists and subspecialists involved to identify, are there any new treatments from a pharmacologic point of view, any new drugs that can be used for this disorder? Um, are these drugs in clinical trials? And most clinical trials are either done from, um, they're pharmaceutically uh, driven and they're pharma-oriented, or sometimes the investigator himself or herself can lead a clinical trial. So are there clinical trials to which we can refer our patients? And once the clinical trials, uh, and we have many um, websites and the ability to follow where are the clinical trials for certain diseases. And once a clinical trial is over, the data have to be analyzed mm -hmm. and then decide, you know, is the drug meeting the outcome measures that is necessary, you know, is the outcome that the drug is effective, has it been proven? Is the drug safe? How good is the evidence? 
And then it's the whole process of going with our regulatory bodies mm -hmm. to decide, will this drug actually be approved for and we recommend it to list on our provincial formularies. And once it, there is an approval process, then of course the, the, the company that is sponsoring the clinical trial or whoever is dealing with the drug has to negotiate a price that the <laughs> payers will agree to. <laughs> and we'll stop it right there because I know price is actually a great segue to our virtual guests. I want to welcome Dr. Sandra Sirs. She's an endocrinologist at University of British Columbia. Welcome, Sandra. And of course, Tara Fowler. And Tara, you're going to share your personal story. I'm going to get Cheryl to introduce you, but I am actually going to welcome both of you into our virtual chat. And Sandra, uh, pricing. Why are some drugs so astronomically expensive. Uh, thank you. And, and I'd just like to echo uh, Cheryl's thanks for having a, a podcast on this topic, because like Cheryl, I feel very strongly that this, uh, the scope of this problem is not something that most people know. And we really need people to know about it, not just patients and doctors, but taxpayers uh, and government. We're talking about a humongous scope in terms of price. We are talking about multiple drugs that cost thousand dollars a year or more per patient for ongoing therapy. And some of the newer gene therapies uh, and specialized cancer therapies uh, will be in the seven figures, so over a million dollars. Now, there are several aspects to this, okay? The first aspect is that although rare diseases are rare, collectively there's a whole bunch of them and it's actually estimated that one in 12 Canadians has a rare disease. So when we're looking at these very, very high cost drugs, we are actually in a situation currently in Canada where close to 10% of provincial drug budgets are being used to fund a fraction of a percent of patients. And that would be fine for those drugs that work really well, uh, right? Because I think Canadians in general, they support uh, the treatment of patients with bad diseases. The problem with rare diseases is that doing research on them is more difficult. So we often, when a drug comes to market, don't know how well it works. Uh, and in fact, many of these drugs actually, when we have studied them after they've been on the market, do not work very well at all or, or at all. Uh, and so when we're talking about not just astronomical costs and astronomical costs that are, you know, at the level which is not sustainable in a publicly funded healthcare system, but also when we have uh, serious questions about whether or not a drug works, because you don't want to keep giving a patient a drug that does not work. Uh, you know, you're exposing them to the side effects and you're not helping them. Then we really see that what we need is some infrastructure around not just escalating the access, because for sure we want patients to get rapid access to drugs, but we also need to know if they work because if they don't work, we need to stop giving them to them. That's the first thing. And the second thing is we need to say, why doesn't it work? I mean, it sounds like it should work. It makes sense that it should work, but it doesn't work. So what do we need to do to actually find a drug that does work? That's what we need for patients. We need access and we need drugs that work. Uh, and uh, those two things right now are being, uh, are, are really a problem. Wow. 
Um, and I guess to um, Sandra, in your opinion, um, how how safe are are drugs? Some drugs are are not very safe at all. Um, I'll give you an example of uh, of that was a recent study looking at. Certain cancer drugs are sometimes expedited to the market uh, because there's an unmet need, and then uh, and then you need to collect evidence on how well they work after people are already taking them. And a very recent study showed that about 30% of the drugs that were brought to the market in that way, so brought to market without evidence that they worked yet because they were expedited, didn't work at all. And this has two consequences from a patient's viewpoint, both of which are unacceptable. So the first is that these are cancer drugs and this, and therefore have a wide range of side effects and the patients continued to take them and were exposed to the wide range of side effects. And secondly, and more importantly, those patients, because they were taking a drug that did not work, were not offered a drug that might have worked. And so this is unacceptable, I think, for patients and physicians. So one, although we, we all want to speed up access, we need to do it in such a way that we have a way of evaluating whether or not the drug is working. And that's just a critical piece uh, in terms of giving the best care to patients. Wow. Okay, so I want to bring in Tara and I want you, Cheryl, maybe just to give a little preface. Sure, sure. Um, also, thank you, Sandra, for everything that you've said. Uh, when you talk a little bit about evidence, uh, I, I want to just qualify this to reassure people who are listening. And I know, Sandra, that, every, that I'm not directly involved in COVID research and vaccine research, but I have a lot of confidence in the people and the science who are making recommendations regarding access to COVID vaccine. So this is not about COVID. <laughs> no. We've no, got good no. evidence. Yes. And they work. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, but talking about our access to drugs for rare and ultra-rare diseases, um, I'm not Tara's daughter, whose name is Megan's doctor. I am a colleague of Tara's, uh, Megan's doctor. Um, Tara's daughter's name is Megan. Mm -hmm. And she was diagnosed, well, 2018 or so, um, with, uh, or 2017, with an ultra-rare kidney disease, um, dense deposit disease. DDD goes by a couple of names, and um, her specialist who cares for for Megan contacted me because you know I'm involved in and and helping get access mm -hmm. um, to proven drugs for rare diseases. Uh, if I could help in the process of acquiring access to an, another drug called Eculizumab that was approved in other countries for a variety of, of similar kidney diseases, but not specifically for dense deposit disease. And um, um, Megan's doctor, Megan and Tara, uh, started on a journey in 2018 that I'll let Tara tell you about. Tara? Hi, thank you so much for inviting me into this talk today. Um, yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about our experience with trying to get um, a, a rare drug for the rare disease that Megan has. Um, like Dr. Um, like Cheryl said, it is called Ecoluzumab. And at the time in 2018, it was one of the most expensive drugs in the world. Um, and I know Dr. Megan's doctor and her whole team worked really hard at getting access to it. They spent 
probably from February to April trying to get access to our drug, to this particular drug that we needed. Um, we applied to the company and we got a denial letter. We applied to Manitoba Health and we received a denial letter. Um, I reached out to the government, to the Manitoba Health Minister here in our province and got a denial letter. Our insurance wouldn't cover it. Um, we were able to get, the, uh, Megan's team was able to um, advocate for her and we were able to get four doses back in April and May of 2018, um, funded by, I believe it was the Children's Hospital Foundation, don't quote me on that though. Um, and so we did get access to four doses through April and May and then um, through the Children's Hospital and then the WHRA was able to access their contingency fund and get us four more doses. So um, we were lucky enough to get a total of eight doses back in 2018 and um, uh, because Megan had decompensated and wasn't doing very well at all in 2018 and uh, was losing kidney function and had a really bad nephrotic flare. And so after receiving ecluzumab, or eight doses of ecluzumab from April to September, um, her kidney function rose back up and um, she no longer needed to be hospitalized and uh, did not need any kind of um, treatment besides the basic kidney disease treatment. And so we were super happy that we were able to access that those eight doses. Um, Unfortunately, that was it. We didn't have any more after that. Um, and by spring of 2019, she was in full-on kidney failure. And so our, our concern is, you know, we can get temporary to the expense. It wasn't approved for long-term use. And uh, we really needed long-term use of this drug to save Megan's kidneys. Oh, wow. It's hard to see. I don't know if yeah. you got the most of that. She ultimately got approval for a longer course, mm -hmm. but by then, Megan's kidney um, function had deteriorated to the point that the drug could no longer be used anymore, and that Megan went on dialysis oh, and is on goodness. a transplant list now. And can I, Tara, can I ask, what was the cost of the drug? Um... $50,000 a dose. I think each, I, I know the first two doses were higher and I think they were $12,000 a dose. Wow. Um, and after that they were, yeah, they were $8,000 a dose. Uh, Ecolizumab in adults uh, is, is uh, over, the list price is over $700,000 a year. Oh yeah. my goodness. Um, so Megan, Megan as a child would, would obviously be at a lower dose, but uh, like as Tara said, uh, one of the most expensive drugs in the world. And interestingly, Canada has the highest prices of ecolizumab to my knowledge than any country in the world. Yeah. That's, a, that's another issue. And then, <laughs> about pricing. Uh, yeah, and who, who regulates that? The government? <laughs> who, who creates those prices? Uh, well, don't get me started. The yeah. Go for it, Sandra. Go for it, Sandra. Uh, <laughs> uh, creates those prices. And I think this is actually one of the, the, I hate to hear stories like Tara is talking about with Megan, you know, 
how much pressure on families. Mm -hmm. That's not what we we need families to do, uh, right? If we had some kind of infrastructure where we could say, okay, this is a very rare kidney disease. We don't know if this drug works in this kidney disease. So let's slot her in and do, you know, what we call an N of one trial, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, And if she responds, then she can continue, right? And that contributes to evidence. Then that, that would have saved this family and all of the people around her who were lobbying and advocating, and we we don't want patients to have to deal with this. At the same time, since I've told you that the ecolizumab prices are higher in Canada than in other countries, you have to say, well, you know, WTF, you know, if you pardon the language, (laughs) and actually Canada has the third highest drug prices in the OECD. I think Canadians think that Canada has good prices because it has good prices relative to the United States, but that's not saying anything. And there, you know, this is another reason we want people to know about this problem because if, for example, there are uh, strategies that governments might propose to try and rein in prices, uh, we, we believe that taxpayers need to know that these have to be supported, right? Because this is just not feasible. And there's no reason whatsoever that Canada should pay more for the same drug than, than Britain or Australia. Why should we pay more than, than that? So we need to actually support that. And the final thing I'll say, it sort of goes back to the COVID situation where I think a lot of people are saying, well, why isn't Canada in the business of manufacturing vaccines? You know, would our supply have been better if we were in the business of manufacturing the vaccines? And I would just say that the issue of manufacturing drugs in Canada is something that has been lost over many, many governments of many different stripes. It wasn't a decision by by any. But I'm hoping as people now seem to support the idea of, of maybe local vaccine manufacturer that they might also say, hey, should we be looking at some of the other drugs that are really putting a, a, a drain on our healthcare system. And, and that's, again, why we want public the public to know about this problem. So rather than saying that's a crazy waste of money to make, make stuff, let's just buy it from another country, uh, maybe they'll say, hey, you know, maybe the better thing to do for some drugs is actually to make them in Canada. And you agree, Cheryl? I totally agree. I, I wanted to just build on that with three different Three quick comments. Um, the first has to do, I mean, pricing is really an important factor ultimately in whether our patients can access these drugs and whether they'll be listed on prov- provincial formularies. So there's no question that pricing is important. And Sandra and many others are working on strategies with multiple stakeholders to how to make this, this whole issue of pricing of drugs for rare diseases you know, more um, uh, economical in the sense that that is going to improve the access. Um, the, the, the same thing um, has to do with uh, pricing is not the only reason but whether or not a drug will get listed on our formularies. It has, as Sandra mentioned, a lot to do with evidence. Mm-hmm. And we know because our clinical trials for rare disorders often involve a small number of patients, not thousands and thousands like you might see in COVID, that evidence sometimes is slow in accumulating. But that does not mean that we mustn't continue to do the proper clinical trials and gain the evidence. And the N equal one route and accumulating what's called real world evidence to help make the case whether or not a drug is effective is something that we strongly, strongly advocate. And thirdly, as um, Sandra mentioned, you know, the, the pressure on the patients to try the patients are under tremendous pressure. They're quite mm-hmm. desperate. They want something. 
something to help their disease, to help their child's disease, and um, they're very vulnerable. So as physicians, you know, we have to make sure that all the patient's needs are, are met and that they are, are feeling supported by their health care providers and also by the public in helping gain access to proven new drugs for these rare diseases. And there's an exponential increase in the number of approved drugs that we're going to see in the next five to ten years, which is exciting for patients, exciting mm -hmm. for families, and exciting for, for us as care providers. Oh, no doubt. And do you kind of think that maybe this whole pandemic has kind of spurred that on too? Um, it, it hasn't hurt yeah. because it does it has highlighted the whole area. I mean, you know, for years and years ago, I've been getting flu vaccines. I never dawned on me to ask what's in a vaccine, you know? Yeah, no. Yes, I get the vaccine. Now people, I think, are learning that it's important to ask questions mm -hmm. and it's important to, uh, to, to really to seek out answers, uh, but to pick and choose really where the, the real sources of, of the right answers are available to them. So I think it's, it's definitely helped. Yes. It's definitely helped. So Tara now, um, how is Megan? And I guess, how, how are you and, and the family now moving forward? Uh, Megan has been on dialysis since July of 2019 and um, she does well on dialysis. She goes four days a week. Um, it helps her tremendously. Um, she is scheduled for transplant on November 4th. Wow. She'll be being my kidney. Oh, wow. Wonderful. So uh, the, the strain on our family has been enormous. Um, you know, she was extremely sick from her kidney failure in spring of 2019. And um, her and I spent two months in hospital. So I lived there. I worked from the hospital. I spent some time, you know, four hours a, a day going into work. Um, and so she wasn't at home with us. And I wasn't at home with my other family members. And um, now that she's getting dialysis, her, her father takes her back and forth to the hospital four times a week. And so, you know, there's, there's a cost and there's a strain on the whole family when, when one of the family members is so sick. Yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, I want to add one thing, you know, Tara, the striving to get approval for eculizumab is not over even after the transplant, you know. There's some evidence that, you know, we're going to have to restart, you know, that request, um, depending how, how Megan does, because um, ecolizumab may still be indicated, you know, in some of the post-transplant patients. Mm -hmm. And as even, even in the past three years, the evidence for the use of ecolizumab in this and some other similar kidney diseases, you know, is changing the, the, uh, all the indications. And as, as Sandra says, you know, you know, the real world evidence needs to be accumulated so we can make our mm -hmm. right recommendations to our payers and our mm -hmm. regulators. So the case is ongoing. I, I was curious, how old is Megan, Tara? Oh, she might be frozen. Tara, how old is Megan? I don't think she can. She is now 17. Am I unfrozen? Yeah, you're unfrozen now. You're unfrozen, <laughs> but I she couldn't make that out. Okay. It was garbled. Say again. Megan is, Megan is 17 years old. Now oh, lovely. Oh, my goodness. And who knows, you know, um, you know, maybe she'll be sure. walking down graduation row, right? 
um, sure. if all things go, you know, are go considered. And wow, it's a, I guess a silver lining through all of this too. And I mean, I can't imagine the strain on your on your family, Tara, and I mean, and and of course, COVID and everything else that on top of it but um, I think that you are in good hands with such advocates like this and well, she has a wonderful doctor or specialist <laughs> or kid, pediatric kidney specialist and you'll yeah. soon be moving up to the adult world oh no but they'll take good <laughs> yeah. care of her too we're, we're a little nervous about that transfer they're keeping us until uh, she's 19 though because of COVID everything's been delayed oh, so that's good. That's a little good. grateful for that we get to stay with our favorite team until she's 19 that's because good. Megan's team has been Fantastic. Her transplant yeah. doctor has advocated for her, and if her disease begins to attack her kidney again after surgery, she is already qualified to enter a trial for a different drug um, oh. that will help with her C3G. So, you know, there's trials coming down the pipeline, and there's new drugs coming down the pipeline, and uh, we want to be part of that and of creating um, and approving new drugs. So she couldn't say it. I know she says it better than ever. Right? Yeah. So, I, Tara, any kind of words of wisdom for other families that could be in the same situation as yours? Um, the thing that's been most supportive to me, besides Megan's own team, is seeking out parents of children who also have the same disease and just talking to them and connecting with them, that has been extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. No doubt. And for you, Sandra, I know that you're going to be marching on along with, with Cheryl here. Um, what can we do now as concerned citizens? You know, and, and rightfully so, we don't know anything about this until we're actually in it, um, until we're actually like Tara. And that at that point, it almost seems like a little too late. But what can we do now? Well, I, I think every stakeholder uh, has a role here. I think patients and families, like Tara has said, they say that she supports developing new evidence. We need everyone to support developing new evidence. In fact, we need it to be mandatory, I think, in terms of when we actually don't know if a drug works, we need to collect evidence to say that it does. We also need patients and families to understand that if the drug doesn't work, that we should be stopping it, uh, right? And that's a really hard thing to understand if you're talking about a rare disease where there's not something uh, else. We need physicians, as Cheryl said, to think could this be a rare disease? They don't have to. Uh, they don't have to know which one, but they need to think. Well, is it possible that it's a rare disease? And they also need to support the evidence collection. We need governments to support, uh, provide us some infrastructure to actually get high quality real world evidence collected. And we need them to use that to reevaluate decisions. As Cheryl has said with Ecolusumab in particular, uh, when it came to market several years ago, there wasn't information on these kidney diseases and we need to change that. And finally, and quite frankly, we need manufacturers to drop the price. They price the profit margin on rare disease drugs is double the profit margin on drugs for common diseases. That is not reasonable. What is reasonable is for them to make a fair profit, the same profit, and that will mean the drugs will be more expensive than drugs for high blood pressure or diabetes, but double the profit, that is not acceptable. And we need to work with other countries, I think, to really try and rein in that spending. And that's what we want taxpayers to support. We want taxpayers to support any initiatives that we can to bring the prices down on the drugs so, so that the patients can have them. Right. That's what's mm -hmm. important. 
yes, bottom line, we just want to find a cure and you know, quality of life. So, yeah. um, Cheryl, I guess if you want to close up, but I think, you know, thank you so much, Tara, for sharing your story and good luck, our fingers crossed, for you and Megan, November 4th. It's going to be thank mir you. Miracle Day. And uh, thank you so much, Dr. Sandra Sirs. I I'm sure that we'll have you back. I want to see where we've gone or if we've gone thank any you. further. Well, th there are, are many support organizations and lay groups in Canada who are working on many aspects of a rare disease strategy for Canada. And maybe I can give you some links and yes. maybe you can share with your listeners, you know, if they want yeah. to get more information about this, um, you know, how to, to become better informed. Because no question, we need all the support we can get for our patients. Oh, well, thank you so much. We'll post those links up on our Facebook page at I Like You. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you, it's thank always you been so a much for having us. Thank you, Tara, for coming. Sandra, thank you. Nice to see you. We'll speak again very soon. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of iLikeHugh.com. Podcast distribution from the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.